On today's episode, we're talking academic publishing, open source alternatives, and John's inability to find a job. <laughs> uh, interact with Sociology Improv at the societypages.org slash improv or on Twitter at Sociology Improv. Don't put that the thing about me not getting a job on there. I don't think that part's going to make the cut anyway. Sociology Improv is looking for a new name for the show because it's not really improvised and it's not always about sociology. Maybe you can do better. So if you have a suggestion for a good name for the show, please let us know and we'll take it under consideration. And if, if we choose your name, we will, uh, we will mention you and give you a gift. Oh, there will be prizes. Prizes yeah. multiple. Possibly even second, third place prizes, honorable mentions, best insulting Ooh. name suggestion. Yeah, we could get, we could maybe even come up with some categories. Uh, there will be a congeniality, of course. Um, of course. You know, the obvious ones. Yeah. So, we would appreciate the help. Let us know what we should call ourselves. Be part of the magic. To the coffee shop, maybe muddies for a refill and some sociological studies. See the junkies. So I, uh, so the good news is that this paper that uh, Joe Gertice and I wrote is being published. Oh, congratulations! So, well, it was, uh, you know, and now I'm going to proceed to complain about it. <laughs> Not about <laughs> the paper. Before you do that, just just uh, kind of you know appreciate the the positiveness of it for a second. Yeah. Okay, now you can be. All right, I'm done. Um, <laughs> thanks. You know, I hadn't done that yet, so I'm glad you made the space for it. <laughs> Athena Nike. <laughs> but I was, I was talking to my dad about this, for example. He, I was telling him how I, you know, I, I was getting this article published, and he was kind of asking how that works, you know, not knowing anything really about how academic publishing works or peer review or any of that stuff, right? So I'm explaining the system to him, and it goes kind of like this, right? Uh, you have a bunch of academics who work at you know, universities say, say they're at the university of Minnesota where they're paid. Um, and the, in the case of the university of Minnesota, it's a public university. So they're, they're, they're paid at a publicly funded institution, um, to teach and to do research. And then as part of their, their job for free, they produce articles. Like you don't get paid for articles, you know, and then you submit those articles to journals and who runs the journals, uh, editors of the journals who are other faculty at other institutions, who are also generally not paid if they are, it's like just kind of a symbolic thing, you know, like not a lot of mm -hmm. money. And yeah. then they basically take the article and distribute it to other professors at other universities who are not being paid to do this either to do peer review. So they have to read it and comment on it and recommend whether or not it should be accepted or rejected. And then, you know, the editors pick the best articles and they, they, they put it all together into a, into a issue and they publish the, the journal and then the journal gets published and it's very expensive. You know, um, if you want to buy a single article, it's 12, 15, 20 bucks. What do they even charge to go download a PDF of an ASR issue or, or article or whatever? And, you know, universities, public universities, uh, of course, have to subscribe to all of these journals to be serious, to be taken seriously as, you know, higher education libraries, right? So they have to pay a whole lot of money to get the journals. So the question is like, you know, you've got, this is the workflow, right? <laughs> you know, you, this is like the, the ecosystem of journal publishing. You've got all this free labor, authors writing their articles, peer reviewers, reviewing other people's articles, editors of journals who are kind of facilitating the whole process, producing all this stuff. 
And then you've got this really expensive product that comes out of that when no one's getting really, really getting paid anyway. And then why is it so expensive? And then the co- the implications of it being so expensive, you know, it's, it's horrible for universities. You know, this is a real problem for university budgets right now. Um, like university libraries are really struggling to keep up with the rising costs of these things. And, you know, students, right. Uh, you, you have to, I mean, through the, you know, students generally through their library get access to these things, but the general public, like a lot of research is funded. Say, or non-affiliated researchers or such non- as yourself. Exactly. Which, which is totally true. You know, I cannot actually, I, I, I checked last week. I can no longer go to the university library website and get articles. So that means if I need to read a published article, I either need to fork out the 25 bucks or whatever ridiculous amount they want to get it. Um, or I have to email one of you and ask me to do me, ask you to do me a favor. <laughs> so if you join the ASA, you get some ASA articles for free part of as, as your, um, oh, uh, yes. Yes. your yearly fee. Also, John, I would like to point out it would uh, likely violate several copyright laws were you to request me to use my institutional access to write an, ar- uh, an article for you. And I just want to point out that I do not break the law right, while we're we'll, talking in this public forum. We'll let, we'll edit that out, okay? Uh, <laughs> let's just forget I brought it up. <laughs> um, Solicitation. But, but anyway, like, so this is the, you know, this, and, and, oh, yeah, and the fact that, you know, a lot of the research and a lot of the research institutions like, you know, Minnesota or public universities are publicly funded as well, you know. Uh, so faculty get grants to fund their research at their institution, which is itself publicly funded to teach to students who are paying money to go to this school. And somehow the product, like the core product of all this is not freely and easily accessible, Right. Even though the people who are producing the knowledge and the people who are facilitating the uh, the value added of the peer review process, they're not really getting paid. I mean, they're getting paid indirectly because it's part of their job, but they're not getting paid. So, like, what's going on here? This is insane. John, if I, so I could expensive? hop in. I, I got a couple things. Um, I mean, first, there's the uh, age-old point about, obviously, pub- publicly subsidized work going entirely to private profit. Um, but that's a whole different direction to take it. But... Uh, I believe I also sent around to all of you an article, and listeners, you can click on a link on the website right now and read this article. Apparently, the faculty advisor board for Harvard's library issued a statement saying that it's just they can't afford to subscribe to all the journals they need and calling for faculty and grad students to publish in open source journals. Open access. Sorry, open access. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, uh, and open access has long been kind of touted as the one sort of workaround for these, you know, very expensive processes. But, you know, there's been a whole host of problems, blah, blah, and we can get into all that. But it's certainly a big deal when one of the premier universities in the world comes out saying, like, this model doesn't work and we need to figure something else out. Can you describe open access publishing? Well, I mean, as far as I understand it, there's several different models, but essentially it would be more or less the same model, only there wouldn't be the absurd costs. It would still be mostly everybody doing this labor for free, but then it would just be made, you know, available online for no cost or significantly lower cost. It's coming back to me now. So here's the, I mean, the the deal with a lot of what's called open access journals um, is that they have a lot of the costs associated with that model, you still have traditional publishers doing the publishing, you know, um, they're still editing and typesetting or, you know, for, to whatever extent you can call it, they do typesetting. I mean, (laughs) you see journals that are basically just like Microsoft word documents printed, but anyway, um, 
they're still doing all of that work. There's still all of the costs of, you know, I guess I should say, you know, it's not, it's not true that no one's getting paid. So like context, for example, at Minnesota, and I know a lot of the other journals have a similar situation where there is like a managing editor who gets paid. So like context has a managing editor budget for a part time. It's not a full time job and it's not particularly well paid, but you know, like context, ASR, AJS, these, you know, there, there are like part time managing editors to help keep track of all this stuff. So there is like, there are definitely costs. It's not like there aren't costs and then there aren't some people getting paid. So, you know, the problem with the open access thing is that, you know, people think that if you just say, oh, well, you don't have to print it, then all of a sudden all the cost, like that's, that's like 80% of the cost right there. And it's not take away the printed product. It's still kind of an expensive deal to produce traditional journals and make them available online. And the answer that at least this is where it was last time I read up on this was a lot of journals that were open access were actually sort of requiring authors to pay. So like, you know, um, but to be just, fair, so do the current for-profit journals usually uh, more than more than pay. just more than just a submission fee though. I mean like actually pay to have your article be open access or be published and you know the argument was well that's okay people will just like write it into grant funding and stuff <laughs> like that money for that sort of stuff. Yeah, I got invited to publish in this uh kind of professional journal. I won't mention which one and they wanted a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, for submission, like $900. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to do that. I mean, maybe I'm stupid, but I didn't. I don't know. That seems like a lot of money to me. Uh, it kind of undercuts one of the symbolic meanings of peer review, which is that this is based on the merit of the scholarship involved and not $900. Yeah. That stuff could still be there, but. <laughs> It is significantly overshadowed by nine hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, and see, and I don't know if there's like a, a submission fee apart from a acceptance and like a publication fee, where if it gets accepted, you have to pay or something. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. That would be that would make, kind of make sense to me. But but the, the, the one thing we haven't talked about, but which is the elephant in the room, I suppose, is there's only one thing. Uh, <laughs> one of the things is impact factor. That there is no status whatsoever associated with publishing in an open access. Well, journal. yeah, that's. I mean, that's the biggest thing stopping people from going over there because you know it. It it's stigmatized. You know, it's like internet dating, man. It's still it's got a ways to go. But <laughs> that actually, to me, is what made the the Harvard statement so big because if you know if the faculty at places like Harvard are starting to move to open access, that's it's got to bring some prestige along with it, right? I mean, it's you know it's like any social. It's like any social creation, right? Like, we just need to reframe how people perceive it. As a counterexample, someone, one of the head librarians at the University of California has argued for similar things as what they're doing at Harvard, saying that the, the extortion by the publishing companies is out of control, and the only way we can do this is by stopping to, to publish in these journals or by flagrantly violating copyright law and hosting this stuff for free and shifting it around illegally. And according to... Most of the people who are in the hard sciences that I talk to, they've said, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense, but no one's going to do it because there's no impact factor associated with that. If, if right. you get published in science or nature, you could get shortlisted for a Nobel Prize. If you publish on something no one's ever heard of, no matter how good the work is, you don't make the cut because you're not guaranteed that these are your true peers. You're not guaranteed that all the people who do science writing for journalism – are going to pay attention to it because they never heard of the journal and they don't have the institutional backing of science or nature or one of the big names saying this is something you should pay attention to. 
Right. They have no interest at all in doing that. But again, it's a perceptual problem, right? I mean, it's, you know, those things exist because no one does it yet, right? It's that we need, you know, right. again, it's, it's going to take some prominent scholars who sort of carry prestige with them going to these kind of places, I think, before you can ever really make it happen. And Harvard's been aggressive in throwing its weight around trying to make some of those changes. Yeah, but there's still cool. so much... It is kind of cool, but there's still so much distrust of them for doing it. You know, oh, like, sure. On the one hand, it's cool that Harvard's doing it. On the other hand, no one at Harvard's going to be affected if it doesn't work out. But someone at Western Kentucky State or whatever it is might have some serious concerns about that. Right, but that's the thing. I mean, that's why I'm saying, like, it's going to take people with prestige to kind of, like, do that, make it a safe space to where someone, uh, a Western Kentucky hilltopper, uh, <laughs> can feel free <laughs> but, to... But, so but it, it's, it's not just the, presti- the, the elite people coming along. It has to be the rank and file. Well, yeah, but... higher stakes. So, I'm, yeah. I'm basically arguing for vanguardism here, I believe. <laughs> I don't... But, that, but that's just it, though. I don't think... You know, I don't think there are elites doing that, right? I mean, they're generally, you know, the... Oh, I don't and, know that they are. And here's my, but here's my question. Like, I could understand how... So, like, Jesse, you, you got a job next year, right? I did. You did. I and that means you're going to have to, like, start publishing because the tenure clock will be ticking, right? Tick, ticking. Tick, tick. So you need to, you need to publish. So, you know, for you, this is a really great uh, idealistic uh, conversation. But at the end of the day, if you have a choice between publishing in a journal... That you maybe for whatever reason you, you don't agree with, you're, you're, you're going to do it because, you know, you want to, like, keep your job. Right, and that's exactly my point about the vanguardism is, like, I will be in a very vulnerable position where I absolutely, like, my career absolutely rests on, like, the, the perception of me by my peers in a very real way, right? But that's why we need people who are, you know, well-tenured, prestigious in the field, like, that kind of thing, who suffer basically no consequence from doing this to, like, start to give it some legitimacy, because it just can't, I mean, it could only be people in my position leading the charge if we are well united and doing as such. And at the moment, that movement just isn't there. But see, there's the problem with that, though. And this is like a lot of, um, you know, reform kind of movements work this way, have this problem where the people who are in the leadership positions and the people who are doing well tend to like the system that they did well in. Or yeah, they tend almost. to accept it. You know, um, so yeah, it's it's great when you're a grad student to be angry at the way academic publishing works. But you know, after you've suffered through it for a decade or more, and you finally got tenure and you're doing okay, you know, eh, whatever, I'll I'll put up with it. I've I've made it this far. You know, if I had that much of a problem with it, either I would have failed or I would have left, or you know, um, and I, th- I think that's what happened. And th- this, like, you could, I think this applies to a lot of things because this is what everyone tells you. Like, you get, you enter grad school and you immediately start hearing, wait until you get tenure, wait until you get tenure. You know, and the truth is, tenure is a long ways off for someone starting grad school. So if they're going to put off all their right. frustrations until they have tenure, by the time they get tenure, they're a different person. <laughs> you yeah, know, they're <laughs> editors of the same journals that they were ranting about. But exactly. again, this is, I, I mean, this is my exact point, right? That's why it's, you know, it's, that's why it's a big thing that say, again, this Harvard memorandum or, you know, the UC one that I've just been made aware of. Uh, that's why these are big things, because these are the very people who clearly have already benefited from the current journal system and have really, you know, well, I don't nothing know. to gain by moving away from the current journal system. Well, but I don't know about that. That's why it's who, big who, news. So who made the statement at Harvard? Is it like the library or something? 
No, it's like the faculty advisory council to the library. Yeah, yeah I don't know. So <laughs> it is. Fact- <laughs> I'll believe it. I mean, I'm not saying. Look, I'm not saying it's like world changing. I'm just saying like this is a good sign in yeah. the correct direction. Well, and one of the things I know, I mean, one of the things I think they're encouraging is kind of like if you're a faculty member at Harvard and you publish, you know, because you can actually do this. Like academics don't, as a general rule. But when you get a contract, you don't actually necessarily have to sign it without asking any questions and without making any demands of your own like <laughs> you can actually this is the way contracts work actually you can negotiate it turns out. yeah it turns out um but like that's uh you know they have like standard writers you can find like I, if you look around you can find them where you know it gives you the language to use and everything to say you know i'm gonna you know i'll agree to this such and such conditions in in this contract with the provision that this you know, the, this, this writer applies also. And it says that I have the right to, you know, publish my, you know, uh, um, to, you know, uh, distribute this, uh, article online on my website or distribute it however I want or whatever, you know, that exists. That is one option. Like you can do that, but you know, it's a pain. You're like, you're like the inconvenience. Then you feel like you're the, you're the jerk, right. Who's holding up the, the, the whole journal, you know, Oh, we're busy enough, and now we've got to deal with so and so who wants to make this, you know, principled stand on this thing. And I should say, actually, I was looking at this the the contract that like I signed, uh, which was it was it's a Blackwell journal. Um, and let's see, it does say here that. Um... <laughs> Hold on a second, while John violates some <laughs> non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I'll just read it. Uh, the right stated above, the author shall retain the right after publication by Blackwell Publishing to use all or part of the article and abstract without revision or modification in personal compilations or other publications of the author's own work and to make copies of all or part of such materials for the author's use for lecture or classroom purposes, excluding the preparation of course packet material <laughs> for onward sale by libraries. Provided that the first page of such use or copy prominently displays the bibliographic information. Um, I think it said something about the website, too. Oh, I can't read it. The type's really small. They don't want you to read this part of it. Exactly. Well, so here's my question. I, I'm not sure if this is where you're going, John, but in case it is. It seems like the academic publishing industry is facing the same problems that the, the you know any other publishing industry, especially media publishing, <laughs> is going through which is how can they still make money on something that is so easily stolen, essentially, right? Like once the PDF is out there, it's going to spread in a variety of places. Well, um, I don't know. Um, Chris, can I challenge that a bit? Of course. In that, uh, that according, I finally found the article referencing this Harvard Memorandum, so I'm reading it. Um, okay. and, and as it points out in the Memorandum there, uh, you know, some journals they subscribe to cost as much as $40,000 per year. And some of them, uh, in their study of them, ha- the prices have increased uh, 145% over the past six years, which they note far exceeds not only the consumer price index, but also the higher education and the library price index indices. Um, and then they note that a lot of these journals have profit margins of about 35%. Which again suggests that they're not really having that hard of a time from it as we move away from paper. No, they're, they're still making money. That much is true. But the the problem still is that that's why they structure the business so that all the money transfers up front, right? Sure. <laughs> so but, they get their money before the material gets out to the public. And then once it does, it's stolen and immediately 
you know, copied and distributed freely, they've already made the money because they get it through library subscriptions or you know whatever deals they have set up. So it's it's that that sector of it that needs to break first, essentially, which is why it's the library committees that are reacting against it because they're the ones saying you're extorting us. But once that's gone, once they don't have those guaranteed profits, they're going to do, I would imagine, the same kind of ridiculous thrashing around that the record industry did to try and say, well, we're not going to publish anything at all anymore. You know, here it is. So it'll be a big fiasco. But see, that's my question, right? Um, and this is this is my, uh, you know, I like I said, I'm kind of like out of the game at this. Like, I'm not. I'm not, I don't have an academic job, so I can be the bomb thriller and not have the cost of like my career uh, <laughs> to worry about like, like, like young Jesse there. Um, but here's my question. You have tenure. You think this is a horrible system. Um, you're producing articles that you want people to read that you think are a value that you think are a timely. Why do you need to publish them in a printed journal at all? I mean, if only we, you know, we, we have the technology <laughs> to distribute, we can do it, to distribute the written word in a very efficient, very accessible, very user-friendly right. way, you know? And so I mean, that, that, let's, let's just like throw out scenario after scenario here. Cause I could, I could see where you know, like we could build up a alternative, uh, system, right? So the first step is, uh, let's say you have tenure, forget, forget any need to publish for any kind of, you know, forget your ego. You know, forget the status that, you know, you, you want to be the guy who's published in whatever big name journal is in your, your particular subfield. Forget all that. Let's just say you're only concerned with the, the, the pure uh, desire to get your work out there to as many people as possible as fast as you can, right? You can take your article and put it on a website and anyone can get to it. And, you know, you're, you're not going to get paid any less personally. <laughs> um and what's wrong with that? So then obviously there are, there, are, there are questions that would come with that. Okay, well, journals do serve some function, right? There's the peer review process for one thing. You know, the idea sure. that uh, some sort of filter, um, you can't just have everyone throwing their own papers up on their own website and expect to ever really know, like, well, how do I know what's good? How do I know that it's, that it's been validated by... What's, yeah, experts. what's relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's one. And then there's also just the matter of like, how do I find it? Like, I know that if I'm a sociologist, I can subscribe to a handful of journals and be reasonably up to date on the state of the field. Right. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's a lot, I mean, that's kind of like a a sort of cheap one. I mean, there's so many easy ways to uh, bring all of them together, you know, if, especially if they're internet published, like it can quite easily be every single journal submits their, you know, uh, table of contents to whatever central sociologyjournals.org or whatever, you know, and it could actually be far easier to keep up on what's coming out in the, without. So journals, there. But I'm saying, I'm saying like without journals, though. like, you know, get rid of journals. Sure. How would you do that? Well, then, I mean, it could still be the same thing. Like if you want people to know somebody creates and maintains all, uh, you know, a Wikipedia or whatever, uh, somebody like a John Schmoida with computer skills and sociological <laughs> interest, you know, maintains a website that, you know, hey, I've published new research registered at this website. Say, hey, everybody, here's a link to my new research. What if I told you that that existed and was actually wildly popular and that some of the top <laughs> scholars in their field were using it? 
<laughs> I love the salesmanship on that. Okay. Well, no, no, no. This is, this is I'm, you, though. I'm naive. What, what, where, where is this All right, so place? I just, I just put tell the link. Me and tell me how I can save. <laughs> no, 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 no. But wait, is there more? <laughs> no, it's archive.org. A-R-X-I-V.org. Uh, Whoa. Go, have you guys Let's heard of this? that again. Um, no, here's the thing. A-R-X-I-V-E.org? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, hosted at Cornell University, and it is basically for, you know, it's... Whoa, hey, it's hold on. Say that at website again. A-R-X-I-V dot org. E, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I just got a website that says the domain is for sale, which I thought was probably not what you're sending probably us Probably not. Um, Here we go. But for physics and mathematics and, you know, the, like, hard sciences and things like that, this is where it's at. Like the, like, like, so like the fields medal winners in mathematics and stuff, like the biggest names in the field, when they write a paper, they put it here first and everyone, everyone follows this. Like, this is how, this is how cutting edge research gets published and distributed in mathematics right now. They publish it on archive. If it's great, people read it and they notice that it's great and everyone starts citing it and they realize this is a really important paper. And then, you know, like after, after it's, and there's won- no, uh, there's no peer review process in it, not peer review in the sense like, like, so, so anyway, on this episode of office hours, a few months back, uh, with, uh, I'll put a link in the, the podcast notes, uh, with Douglas Arnold, who's a mathematician at the university of Minnesota. He was one of the figures kind of, uh, leading the Elsevier boycott from, you know, a while back where a bunch of mathematicians in particular started this movement criticizing Elsevier for their particularly egregious publishing practices. Mm-hmm. Explain really quick what Elsevier is for people who don't know. It's an academic publisher that publishes academic journals and many, many other things too. They probably do books too. Yeah, they do books. So he, he's just actually... say one more thing about Elsevier. Yeah. They're one of the biggest publishers and for people interested in getting away from the system, they've become public enemy number one of sorts. Because they demand the highest fees, but also publish some of the highest statute journals. Yeah. So, like, if you want to be a library that's legit, you have to have it. But, yeah. Um, so, like, he's, he's like, a moderator for, like, one of the sections here under mathematics. I, I don't know what any of them mean. Um, but, like, you know, he, they, they review it for, like, applicability. Like, yeah, this is not just some crazy person who just, you know, fell on their keyboard and sent it to us. You know, like, this is actually real work, but they don't evaluate it for, like, I don't think they do, like, real peer review in the sense that traditional peer review would happen. But anyway, basically, the way things work now, like, in these fields is things get published here first. That's where everyone hears about them. That's where everyone reads them. And then after, they, after they've made their impact and after they've won awards, then they get published. <laughs> like traditionally, you know, like so to put think, a cap on the whole process. <laughs> I mean, I think that's such a, a better way of doing it in terms of just the sheer time of it. Um, because I mean, it, it takes articles, even articles that are accepted right off the bat. It takes them usually in, measured in years, right? Before they're published. Yeah. I mean, this article I was talking to you about, it was accepted last fall. It's going to, it was a year ago, basically by the time it comes out in September. It's crazy. It maybe took us right, a year. Remains, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's a multi-year really process to get yeah. from even a draft to publication. And you just think if, like, once you had a, a final draft, like the kind you'd submit to a journal, if you could just pop that up online and say, you know, hey, this might be useful to you, you know, it's, it's not perfect. And even in that sense, you could think you could even take a step of sort of open source editing or say, like, 
you know, hey, anybody who is relevant and wants to read this and critique it can throw that in there. All right, here's um, the challenge to that. Please. How many people, how many of you guys check journals on a regular basis for stuff that you might be interested in? It's not my job anymore. I don't have to. <laughs> How, how keep, many of you are interested in doing that I job? I mean, it, I don't right? think in the, the average sociologist job description, combing through journals, looking at the latest research is something that they spend all that much time on. You learn about it through your friends and through other connections you have within the business. You learn about stuff at conferences. Right, but clearly... The journal system as we have it now it. provides these useful filters, right? Yeah, well, okay, but hold on. <laughs> so it's the return of the whole status thing. But hold on, that, Oh, now it's ASR that's publishing this you ha- I need to know about. You have to ask, how much the... All right, why do I not... Why would I not read a journal article? In sociology in particular, because they're awful, they're poorly written... Uh, a, a good, a good, a good half of it is a literature review that could be identical to any other article on the same topic because we have to do right. that because that you know, you know, and how much of that kind of how much of what makes journal articles in our field suck have to do with the whole <laughs> journal system that they exist in? If I was writing to just publish- see, that's the thing. Like, I think. I mean, I'm trying to distinguish between problems with sociology and problems with journal writing because, like, I actually read quite a bit of journals, like medical journals and uh, public health journals, and even they don't social do that, journals. Do they? they don't. I mean, those are actually pretty See, yeah. easy to digest, and they come out monthly. And right. and it's actually science and nature come out every other week. Yeah. I'd say, but that's I mean, that's a big part of the journal publishing process in sociology is that you have to. Like every lit review has to prove basically everything you say all the way back to the founding days of sociology, you know, and that's just sort of like a, I mean, it it might just be a quirk of our field, but it's definitely part of the publication process now that like uh, this extensive lit review that could apply to any paper is necessary to place yourself, you know, in the proper context. But kind of with what Arturo is saying, how important can we say let me rephrase that. How can we say our information is so important when it's based on information that's at least two years old? And in that two years, perhaps we're so ultra-specified, no one else has done anything on the topic at the level of specificity we're talking about, as opposed to you know the, the STEM fields and the hard sciences where the changes actually have meaning for the way people do their work, right? Yeah. Like someone figured this out. This other line of research is done. This is the new standard. And if you get to the high rank, high status publications in those fields, that's kind of what they mean. Like this is the new way of doing things, or this might be the new line of research. In sociology, you know, I study culture first and foremost. Every definition of culture that's ever been used in sociology is still in existence and being used today. Like the, it, we've got some new ways to talk about it, but there hasn't been a change, right? There hasn't been a decline in certain ways of looking at it. Uh, I, and you can, you can. In not really. Ways have they just break down into significant camps and they keep doing what they're doing and it doesn't really matter. And, and that's just my field. You can look to anyone. You know, people, high-ranking, high-status people in our field will publish stuff based on data that's 10 to 20 years old and it'll still be taken seriously as though this is fresh. Part of it is, is the kind of work that we do where yeah, it's, it's there still a- is useful stuff there that we can talk about and it has relevance to the present world. But we're not producing results in the way that biology, chemistry, physics produce results. Yeah, I mean those are all reductive sciences that get to a specific level of information that's usually like – 
pertinent for doing something else. But I think sociology is always going to be something that's more useful in a broad in broad strokes. But whenever it gets really specific, it kind of loses some of its. Um, I don't know what I what I like to think of like its impact of like why why should I read this now? I mean, like for instance, I really like reading books more now than I do journal articles just because in the journal article, even if it's lengthy, it's usually trying to prove itself through like these arduous um, arguments about, you know, literatures and whatnot. Like it's trying to argue that it's relevant, but a book usually like you, you, you appreciate its relevance after you've read the book, you know, and it's usually a bit more substantively more interesting. And I think, I don't know. I think that's just something that, Sociologists haven't really figured out how to like, you know, make these little discernible, easily to digest products. You know, and might maybe it's not possible. But I mean, don't. I, I maybe that's. I I don't think that necessarily has. So to try to like make what's the connection here between this then and the way we do journals versus alternative ways of doing journals. I, it's just that like. Or is this just an I, I, aside on length of our papers that we got? No, I think the sociology <laughs> is is like kind of somewhat timeless at times. I mean, that's it doesn't speak to any particular moment in time, um, and it's not pressing to any any particular debate. But it's just making these broad generalizations of society that you know, albeit interesting, is really not that relevant to your day to day living. Whereas a reductive approach to <laughs> studying whatever it it is relevant, you know, like. Wow, you discover that this type of treatment doesn't work as well as this other type of treatment, you know, and like you found that, you know, this way of controlling standard air and, you know, longitudinal studies is not as effective as something else. Like I'm reading the your uh, the stats theory uh, submissions that came out this week. I mean, like all of that stuff seems pretty cutting edge and pretty relevant to to today, but like does it matter that your the article that you just got published came out this year or four years ago? I mean, does that really matter in a way? I mean, does it make it less, any less relevant? My take is different than that. And it's that the only reason that publishing matters for a field like sociology is to manage prestige and status. That's where all the stakes are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I believe it. Because yeah. if it wasn't about that, then why couldn't we just all publish on archive? Or just publish? We could on have something website. similar that's yeah. more appropriate for what we do, but yeah, we could. And, but we we don't. It's to demonstrate worth in in the field to other people in the field. If you want to get your message out there, there are far better ways to do it than going through an ASA journal. Right. Well, and we're seeing that. Get it out there to sociologists. Not if you want to get it out there to sociologists, but if you want to get it out there, so then yeah. And then we're seeing that we're, we're the whole Freakonomics crew is kind of the best example of this, right? Where they've bypassed academic publishing. They've found their an interested audience through NPR people and so on and so forth. Um, One could also argue they bypass academic publishing because their work isn't very good. <laughs> yeah. fair, fair enough. Um, Dude, ah, whatever things you have on that. But nonetheless, they're creating these kind of, you know, these academic celebrities, people who are going to get chosen to go on The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and shows like that, people who are going to get the spots on NPR. And that's the way they bring attention to the work that we do. It's to audiences that don't care whether they're from Harvard or whether they're a Hilltopper or, or, or anything like that. They just, oh, this is interesting. I can see how this is useful. I heard this person talking about it yesterday on the radio. 
and it made sense to me. That's how I know it's relevant, not, you know, published in 2012, 2011, 2002, whatever it is. So in 20 years, um, when, when Jesse is a uh, emeritus professor at his job. Oh, I'll definitely have That's a quick career. 20 years. 30 years. <laughs> oh, 40 dude, years. After, you, after the third Nobel, I mean, it's kind of, what do you, what do you have left to do? Yeah. They, they had to make a Nobel Prize in sociology for you. Basically. Oh, no. That'll be the, like the last of the ones I win. Somehow I'm going to get one in physics. I'm not really sure. You can do the cycle? It's, it's complicated. <laughs> the yeah, cycle. The Nobel. That's the only thing I'll be going for at that point is the Nobel cycle. <laughs> um, Sorry, okay, you so, were trying to make an actual point. Yeah, but uh, okay, so so go forward 30 years, 40 years, however long you want. Um, is there any hope that, like, is that is this basically more or less how uh, sociologists and academics will be publishing their work in that in that amount of time? I mean, okay, so like the, the details might change, right? So the the journals might not. I mean, this is already happening. The journals might not get printed at all, but. In the, in the sense that they'll be writing journal articles, which go through this long peer review process, which get taken by, which gets uh, 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 consolidated and published in some form by a for-profit press that distributes it online, maybe to universities, libraries, and individuals for high prices. Like, is this ever going to change? The changes affecting how sociologists are going to publish their work are going to be far more influenced by the changing place of sociology within the academy than anything having to do with academic publishing, which gets us into a whole other topic. So I'll leave it at that and toss to someone else. Don't leave it at that. Well, I, I just think sociology isn't going to be as privileged in the academy, um, that our numbers are going to shrink within higher education, that our role is going to be very different than what it is now, and that's going to affect the way we produce work and get work out there sociology as a discipline in particular or social science generally sociology as a discipline i think all the social sciences are kind of going the same way except for economics i think something will have to happen i mean i think all these pressures will create some kind of um impetus for change you know because i think i mean i'm not sure how many people are reading these journals anyway i mean uh, sometimes what I hear from conferences is that not even sociologists are really reading these journals. And, you know, if that becomes even more, um, if the hypocrisy of that becomes even more clear as time goes on, then I think, you know, the discipline will have to kind of not reinvent itself, but think about what is it that it's actually doing, you know? And I, and like right. my comment before was trying to say that I think sociology and it sounds cheesy, is more about continuing a discussion about social life and society and, and less about presenting reducible results. And I think how you carry on discussions may not be in journal articles anymore, you know, unless maybe there'll be like special edition journal articles where there's people talking back and forth to each other. Um, but I, you know, well, how we currently do it, it doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, just to be completely honest. Here's see well, first of all, I I think sociology is a very diverse discipline. So if you take what you just said to an audience full of sociologists that is a you know random sample of sociologists, about a third would be nodding their head in agreement, about a third would be confused, and about another third would be like throwing tomatoes at you. Um, 
about what? Much. About not being a reductive science? Yeah, all that. I mean, it's just that's just the nature of the discipline. It's the kinds of things that people do under the umbrella of sociology very widely. But but see, but like this is like, and I I even think having the discussion about whether or not it fits in journals or whether we should do journals is kind of trying to force what we do into an old model that doesn't really work. Right. So here's, here's my, here's my suggestion, right? Let's just, let's just put all the academic publishers out of business for a minute. Right. They're gone. Right. (laughs) Yes. Let's please do that. Uh, There. Um, let's just say they're not there. There are no more academic journals. Um, and all we have are academics who write things that they, that, 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 represent that what they learned in their research and what they found in their research and they publish it and they publish it online. How, you know, through some easy, good mechanism to do it. You know, I mean, not, I don't want everyone like pasting their word in their, their whole like paper into blogger tomorrow. You know, like, I don't think that would work. Like, I think there are some infrastructure pieces that actually aren't there that make publishing long form written documents, especially of a technical nature with, you know, tables and, stuff and graphics. I think that's actually not as easy of a thing to do as you'd think it would be today, you know, given the state of the internet and online publishing. But let's just say we could figure that out because I think we could, right? Uh, People publish online. Uh, You know, maybe there's a central repository where that gets, that that tracks all this stuff, such as like an archive.org for social science or something, or maybe even archive.org can just expand and not be so narrow. Who knows? But let's say something like that happens. And then, you know, you still have peer review in the sense that you have peers reading your work and, you know, some things get, you know, you have awards instead of journals, you have associations and that are basically like credentialing institutions that go around and give awards to research. They think is great. You get our stamp of approval. You get our stamp of approval. This is the best article this year in, in, in this topic, in this subfield, this is one of the best articles in this subfield. And that's how you sort of collect status and esteem is, uh, you know, how well your article performs and how, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to reduce that to like the, the pair, the, the critic, the critique of that is, so you want to just put a big like button on every article and whoever gets the most likes wins like Facebook or something. And no, not that trivial. Like you can build up a more, you know, robust, uh, worthwhile way of having a distributed network of people evaluate and rate and rank uh, right, works but, that are published online. Like, it, imagine say, that. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say. I mean, in, in a certain way, we already kind of operate like that, don't we? I mean, people might kind of glance over the big journals, but the only stuff you read in like smaller journals um, or more niche journals is people you've heard good things about or something that's brought to your attention by like a section award or something like that, you know? And, and I don't know that it would necessarily be that much different without the journal model. Like there'd still be a bunch of articles out there and you might scan them every once in a while, but for the most part, you'd read the ones by the names you trust and the ones highlighted by, you know, some sort of awards or section or thing like that. I think that's true. And I also think that if in that kind of ecosystem, I think, the writing itself would change like over the long term. Like I think it would change the way people write because you wouldn't have such expectations about here's how long an article has to look and here's the structure that it has to take. No, I, I think you're right, John. I, I was, when we were talking before, I was like, you know, why don't universities, you know, get together and form some 
associations because you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily want like universities to form their own journal articles because to a certain extent they would just privilege you know people who have went to their university or people who are currently at their university but you could form associations on particular ideas or particular problems and just you know create what we think of as journals as a way of disseminating research and that's probably i think how things are going to go because i don't understand why you know we have to pay a third party to basically publish things that nobody's reading well, and actually, that's one of the things in that the interview in Office Hours with Douglas Arnold that he was talking about is that in mathematics, there's a lot more of that where like the association journals are self-published by the association, like they don't have a commercial partner. So like, you know, Midwest Sociological Association publishes the Sociological Quarterly, I think it's a Blackwell publication, right? You know, and, sure. and, and all of the like, all of the journals that are association journals, like the ASA has a contract with Sage and Sage is the publisher of these things. And, you know, a few years ago, it was someone else, um, I think. And, uh, sure. But, like, it doesn't have to be that way either. I mean, it's the, the actual publishing part isn't actually that hard. And it's not actually that expensive, especially if you take out the fact that you need to print it. Like, you know, associations could, instead of serving the role, and, 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 and what I was describing, like, you don't need journals at all. You wouldn't actually need journals because people would be publishing the stuff already. It would be published the minute someone put it up online for people to get access to. What you would really need the new journals to do is be, you know, basically quality control. Quality control. control. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to do the peer review function, to go through and read all this stuff and basically be a group of people and peer review networks to read new stuff that's out there and rank it and give it rewards and, you know, give it your stamp of approval if it's good, you know. Um but anyway, like the yeah, but but like at least in mathematics, at least it's apparently very different. Where it's not the case that all of these journals are published commercially; they're often published by non-commercial entities, like the associations themselves just publish them. You know, so this this is one of the reasons that you know he was hypothesizing that in mathematics, you know, with with like archive and with a slightly more diverse uh, set of business models behind regular journals, they were the ones sort of you know who were raising hell over Elsevier, right? Whereas in sociology, we're stuck with a much more homogenous environment for journals, I think. Pretty much all our journals are published by a handful of commercial publishers, and that's the general world we live in when it comes to publishing in journals. Sure. I think there's space for things like, uh, maybe you just said this, <laughs> I think there's space for things like the society pages to have more of a presence on that. Which uh, is why I like the white pages and stuff like that. Thank you for mentioning bum, that. Bum. It's almost as if we're leading a revolutionary new wave in publishing models. <laughs> and a little bit, kind of. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't use the term hero very often, but we <laughs> may be the greatest American heroes to have ever lived. Just going to put that out there. Tell us what you think. Email podcast at the society pages.org. In honor of uh, Mr. Ray Bradbury passing recently uh, at the tender age of 91, I'm going to heartily recommend everybody dig out the copy of Fahrenheit 451 they probably had to buy for a college English class and go ahead and give that one another read. Here, here. Good call. I've seen a lot of, um, they're old even at this point, but, you know, dude was 91, stuff from the 70s and the 80s where Ray Bradbury talks about his craft. And he seemed like a, a pretty cool guy who uh, he did. He, definitely in the right place. 
The Onion also had a, a delightful headline. Following Ray Bradbury's death, thousands of people buy Kindle version of book about demise of paper books. Nicely done. The Onion. They are clever. John, anything? Um, yeah, I have a... Well, it's a recommendation, but it's really more of a follow-up. And then I also have an apology. I would like to do the apology first. Fantastic. So here's the thing. We record these, and Chris does all the hard work these days. You're, you've pretty much been editing them, and you do a great job at that. And then I get the, the mm. edited final final version, and then I have to like you know post it. And I always have to come up with a title. And I've not been doing a very good job of the title. And when I, don't, when I get lazy about things, you can see the direction I head if you look at our last few titles. So I'm just going to review them here. We had Erotica Friday which includes as album art a naked picture of the, um, um, oh, what was it called, Coney 2012 guy? Right. So I'm not too uh, that's who that is. <laughs> I didn't know who that was. Yeah. So, so we had... more sense now. So we had to be the, clear, we're talking about not Coney, Joseph Coney, but the guy who went crazy yes. trying to protest Joseph Coney. Yeah. <laughs> so we had, a, you know, an episode with a, a kind of a dirty title and album art. And then the next episode, the title was Huff Duff This, which actually is a perfectly innocent statement that you should use this service called Huff Duffer to Huff Duff this podcast and listen to it. But if you listen to the podcast, you realize that Chris and uh, Jesse in particular think that this means something dirty and something dirty and canadian so putting the point out right now this absolutely does not sound like something i would have said i don't i'm gonna challenge this i think there is a record of this actually i don't i doesn't sound like me i like that you praised me for editing and then brought up the one instance where i just totally forgot to edit out the cursing (laughs) that's true that's true but you know john if you were to uh say guess the minute or, you know, general area that we could find this in the podcast on, what would you say? It was near the end. Here yeah, it's the last 10 minutes or so. In the last 10 minutes or so. But anyway, maybe, maybe it was, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, the, the bottom line is I'm to take the blame here, because then I went and made it the stupid title, uh, Huffed, which is just kind of kind of dirty if you listen. And the, the, silly, and the silly Canadian flag. in general sounds kind of <laughs> And the silly Canadian flag just made it even worse. Um, but did you notice I changed the lettering of Sociology Improv to match the red of the flag? I at least gave them, you know, it's at least coordinated, color-coordinated. You're at least speaking with your own voice. It's a color-coordinated insult, at least. I will give you that, sir. So I guess I just want to apologize. This We're above this. I can do better. So that was my apology. Uh, my recommendation, which is really kind of more of a follow-up, is that a few weeks ago we talked about the Hunger Games books. And I had said I hadn't read them. And had any of us read them? When we talked, oh, Arturo had oh, read the book. Arturo had read them. Oh, and I've seen right. the movie since then, too. You've seen the movie, yeah. Like, so so I, I read all three books, like, in, like, the course of a couple weeks, because they're really fun reads. And, yeah, it was, they're good. Uh, they're, you know, I mean, they're, you know, it's not, like, the best literature you've ever read, but, you know, they're fun stories. And, you know, it's kind of like, if you're a fan of the dystopian genre, as I generally am, you know, it's kind of like a cross between um, 1984 and Survivor basically. John, they are okay. totally going to pull quote you on that. Nah, not the best piece of literature, but it's not so bad. Well, no, I mean, like, anytime you recommend books like that, like, you know, they're popular young adult Read novels. Read the works, John People, people are going to, you know, people are, I, I mean, you know, you're around academics. Academics are such snobs about books. You know, like, questions about what your favorite book, that's such a loaded question. So, you know, I just, you have to temper it, like, and it's not, you know, they're fun books. And, <laughs> you're showing it down with the people. I'm sure. No, it's not that because that's pretty. I much would awesome. say the the friend who forced me to see the movie 
had read the books and put it this way. Um, in the face of Twilight and all the other <laughs> teen young adult literature that's out there. It's great. This book is about a woman who is trying to foment a revolution while trying to ignore teenage love at the same time. And put that way, that's kind of a beautiful thing, I think. I don't think that comes across in the film, but if people in their teens are reading something like that, I, I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, I think there are definitely times in the books where I was annoyed at the interplay between, you know, it's the classic love triangle thing going on, you know, between, you know, her and these two guys. You know, classic, like, thing, and it gets, you know, it's a little annoying in some places. But at the same time, I think you're right. Like, all things considered, it's, uh, you know, it's a good book, and she's, yeah. a good, she's a very good character, I think. Yeah, the way it's been told to me is that even though there's a love triangle, she is the empowered party in the love triangle, and that's pretty rare in any strata of, of entertainment aimed towards women. <laughs> so it's good to see. Recommended. Speaking of John and speaking of Canada, I guess I'll recommend the show. It's a Canadian TV show. Um, there are two seasons out. I think they got a third. It's called Todd versus the Book of Pure Evil. Have you guys heard of it? I have not. I ha- have you recommended this before? I, I sent you an email about it because <laughs> you were right. a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, yeah. And this show is obviously taking its cues from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. However, if you're like me and you occasionally watched Buffy but you hated the the melodrama of it all, all the tortured relationships and proto-goth nonsense, but you really liked the monster of the week and the witty dialogue, mm-hmm. then Todd versus the Book of Pure Evil is the show for you because it's very funny, very entertaining. There's an uncensored version, so when it wants to be, there's cursing and there's a lot of gore. It's about a student, a metalhead, pothead at a Canadian high school who, unbeknownst to him, has some sort of connection to this Book of Pure Evil and some deal with the devil. And then he has this ragtag group of friends, much like on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who then solve mysteries of the week as the Book of Pure Evil causes high school students with particular problems to become evil and kill a few people before everything gets figured out. But the, the writing's pretty witty. Um, anything from highbrow stuff to fart jokes. It's a fun show if you can track it down. So Arturo had to leave, so um, I'm sure he would recommend Planet Money if he were here. And another thing that we should do for Arturo, uh, next episode, we are going to be discussing Jose Padilla's Elite Squad 2, which is known in America and on Netflix as Elite Squad, The Enemy Within, which is a Brazilian film about the politics of law enforcement and the drug trade in, in, uh, in Rio de Janeiro. I would say not particularly required that you watch Elite Squad 1, or as it's known in the States, Elite Squad. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, A, you could do worse than watching that movie, and B, it'll certainly fill in some gaps. Uh, but uh, If you have any questions you want us to address or things you think we should talk about, feel free to get in touch with us. You can email us at podcast at thesocietypages.org. You can follow us and communicate with us at Sociology Improv at Twitter. You can even call us and leave us a voicemail message at 612-424-AGIL. 